The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. Coming to you live from Sweden, you're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, welcome to today's show. Uh, I can certainly second Tucker Carlson currently in Moscow's comment about the Western news, news media lying and lying by omission and not telling the truth about um, a war uh, which uh, Western uh, voters and taxpayers asked to commit to and continue to fund and maybe even more. Um, and with that in mind, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lithuania and the Holocaust. Um, the reason why I'm doing that is that the American ambassador very recently, uh, she's new to the job uh, and told the Baltic News Service that she has uh, asked for the Lithuanians to take down their uh, monuments to people who have been, uh, who are seen as partisans in Lithuania, which is a Baltic country of about 3 million people, but who are also uh, associated with the, the Holocaust. Now, we've got to... Um, realized that uh, serious Holocaust scholars like uh, Dan Stone, who's a, who's a London-based um, credentialed scholar and has written a very thick book on the Holocaust, um, is part of that view that says that we have to uh, redefine the Holocaust as um, away from the idea of uh, machine killing and gas chambers. This was prominent in the, in the views of uh, Steven Spielberg in the 1990s, and I guess most people still have that view and it, that it was carried out solely by the Germans. And uh, his book talks much more about the the local conditions of competitiveness and the history of anti-Semitism or, and economic opportunism that led to uh, East Europeans, Lithuanians, Poles, uh, Ukrainians, of course, and uh, Romanians to, to carry out freelance killings of uh, Jews themselves. And to some extent, they perhaps sheltered behind the, the the mighty negative image of the Nazi killing machine. And it's interesting that um, um, out of uh, different countries uh, had different death figures for different uh, for in terms of the number of Jews that uh, died in the Holocaust. And uh, in uh, Denmark, for instance, nearly all the Jews survived. Uh, they were shipped across to Sweden in 1943. One of them uh, being, uh, well. Uh, the the apparently with a, a collaboration of the the, the, the local Nazis, they, they looked through their fingers and they accepted that it would happen. Interestingly, Bulgaria also saved nearly all its Jews, um, and uh, whereas uh, Lithuania, it, uh, nearly all the Jews died. I think there were about three hundred thousand Jews before the war, and ninety five percent of them died. Now, why that is is of course an incredibly sensitive uh, issue. Uh, you could say the Lithuanians might say, well, that's because uh, it was a war zone, whereas Denmark was largely spared uh, war actions apart from the, uh, the very beginning and the, the last few days of the war when the British came in. Um, and so uh, people died of all sorts, and you couldn't just single out the Lithuanians. Anyway, uh, there, also, there is also a history of anti-Semitism in those countries. And in my view, while the uh, issue of uh, Ukrainian Nazi collaboration has now been much highlighted uh, in, in many alternative media, and it was uh, highlighted in the corporate media, but that stopped um, after after uh, February 9, 2022. But I mean, you can go onto Twitter and Google uh, Nazi Ukrainians, and you'll see uh, many pictures of Ukrainian um, 
uh, far right, even today, uh, wearing uh, badges in honor of the uh, Nazi collaborationists with uh, Ukrainian origin in World War II. Now, I am very glad that the American ambassador is doing this because I'm hoping that um, the what because in Scandinavia, which is just uh, Sweden, Finland just joined NATO on slightly false pretexts, and one of the arguments, one of the things images in people's minds is is this idea that the the, the Russians are just bullies and they're saving uh, the the uh, bolts from uh, fate worse than death, you know, Russian occupation. And it's a very physical, visceral thing. You see these small countries and you think, and you see the big giant Russian bear, you know, on a, on a map and you say, well, they're small countries, so they have to be victims and nice people. And the big country always has to be the oppressor. But of course, the Russian narrative, and I'm not saying it's entirely correct or correct at all, is of course that the, the they've suffered invasion down the centuries from, from um, people with bad motives who want to destroy Russia. And uh, the most recent big one was the Nazi invasion in 1941. And there were many East Europeans who still haven't uh, had the requisite uh, reconditioning that the Germ West Germans had after World War II, and that they still have this racial attitude towards people, Jews, yes, but you know also Russians. And looking at some of the comments on social media, and my memories of the Baltic states when I was a, a young journalist there, I mean, you, I heard quite a lot of really uh, racist stuff about the Russians uh, from Estonians and, and Lithuanians. Anyway, uh, so I just wanted to highlight that, that, that um, the, there are monuments in Lithuania that uh, apparently commemorate people who participated in the Holocaust at the same time as they fought the Soviet invasion in 1944. But before that, they'd, they'd helped uh, kill Jews. And I just want to say that also, I mean, I remember as in Vilnius recently, and there's a um, Jewish museum, Jewish Holocaust museum, and it's very, very low key. And uh, the woman who ran it was sort of very defense, very, as I said, she was very um, collaborative and, and sort of, um, you know, I mean, looking to foreign journalists to see her view of things, whereas the the Museum of Soviet Terror, which was a few blocks away, and uh, there's this very arrogant young man who guided us around, I and mean, he's insufferable. And, um, you know, talking about the Soviets did this and that and so on. And of course, many Jews were part of the Soviet mach machinery of repression, especially in the NKVD before the war, before Stalin purged them. So, I mean, it's not a black and white story. And anyway, but it seemed that in Lithuania, official Lithuania, just two or three years ago, there was no room for subtlety. Uh, you couldn't have two sets of victims, the Jews and the Lithuanians. It had to be only the Lithuanian nation state. So I just want the Scandinavians who have this very black and white view of the Baltic states, white view that is, to consider those things. Anyway, enough of the American ambassador to Lithuania. We're on to today's headlines with Basil Valentine after the break. Thanks, TNT Radio. The facts, no spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies, we need the facts. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, Basil. What have you got for us today in terms of the latest news hot off the presses? Good morning, Pelly, and hello to our viewers and listeners all around the world. Um, the United States is going to have a presidential election in November, in case anyone had forgotten. And uh, it seems we have arguably the two most compromised candidates in the history of US presidential elections. Let's start with the incumbent, Joe Biden. Uh, at his most recent appearance, 
he seemed to forget the name of Hamas. He confused President Macron seemingly with Francois Mitterrand, who died nearly 30 years ago. Uh, and his general demeanor was of somebody who is quite frankly disintegrating fast. When you combine that with his unpopularity, particularly among younger voters over his stance uh, on the genocide in Gaza, uh, you have a, a really wounded incumbent who surely can't be expected to lead the most powerful nation in the world for what will be another five years from now, if he serves his full second term, uh, when he's, you know, cognitively, very obviously, seriously impaired already and be will be well into his 80s when leaving office. Surely the Democrats can come up with a better candidate than that. Mm. Do you think so? Well, I think they've got to. I mean, it's a sort of semi-farcical situation. I'm sure you can remember, Pelly, when mm. uh, Reagan ran for the first time in 1980, or rather mm. won for the first time. He'd actually run uh, mm. a few times before that. Um, but when he ran in 1980, there was a lot of talk about the fact that he was 72 years old and was this too old to be president. Uh, it was seen as a major handicap. Um, yeah. And now you've got uh, the octogenarian Biden and people mm. seem to be, well, certainly the Democrat establishment wants to sort of shoe him in, shoehorn him in by fair means or foul so that they can, yeah. you know, maintain their grip on power because they yeah. don't really have anybody else. They decided to rig their own primaries. Uh, yeah. Even the one remaining candidate, Marianne Williamson, and the new ager, she's been mm. complaining in recent days that she hasn't been given a fair shake at all. Uh, Robert Kennedy dropped out because he was told, we're going to rig the primaries. There's no way you're going to be the nominee. Doesn't matter how many votes you get, Biden will be the nominee. Uh, Didn't they rig the 2016 primary? Um primaries i mean they, they, i can't remember but joe biden didn't do too well in, in new hampshire and and iowa and then he came strongly in uh, south carolina i remember being surprised by that and a lot of speculation whether um was it sanders and uh it was 2020 Matiki. when he won that was 2020 yeah, 2020, yeah, yeah yeah i mean yeah the democrat democratic primaries uh the last three cycles have been completely rigged it was rigged mm. for hillary to beat bernie sanders uh, and then it was rigged again for Biden to beat Bernie Sanders. Biden was doing mm. terribly. His campaign was in danger of total collapse. And mm. then suddenly all the other candidates dropped out and endorsed him. Do you remember that? It was yeah, really yeah, quite yeah. bizarre. I only wish I'd followed my own advice and taken the 200 to 1 about Biden being the next president during Trump's presidency. Wow. But I digress. Yeah, it was a big problem. Wow. But... Um, because he'd said he wasn't going to run. He said he thought he was too old. He didn't want to do it, you know. Um, as it is, he seems to be uh, sort of reanimated in some way. People are speculating that they give him shots of amphetamines or something to get mm. him through every day. But, you know, mm. the idea that this, you know, heavily compromised individual 
both personally and politically, with, of course, the corruption crisis surrounding his son threatening to engulf him. The mm. idea that he is the best person to lead the United States over the next five years is absolutely ludicrous. Somebody that's desperate to do so, of course, on the other side, is Nikki Haley, uh, the one remaining challenger to Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. Um, yeah. The, the, who, I remember she was UN ambassador, uh, Trump's UN ambassador, and she was locked and loaded against Iran. That was the thing I remember. And she, uh, everyone says that she hasn't got uh, a huge IQ, um, but she, I guess she's supported by the anyone but Trump uh, faction and the Democrats would like to, to have her because they would rather, they'd probably, well, you tell me what you think uh, her chances are and where she, where, where that story is going. Well, she's being supported by very wealthy Democrat mega donors, uh, as well as by the neocon Warhawk Washington establishment. Uh, but in spite of that, of course, she remains uh, well behind Donald Trump in the polls and the number of delegates secured to the extent the top officials at the Republican National Committee want mm. her to drop out of the race so that mm. they can launch a joint fundraising campaign with Donald Trump to bolster its finances. They are apparently mm. behind where they would expect to be with their campaign finances. She has uh, no chance of becoming the nominee, zero, unless, of course, uh, Trump expires between mm. now and the election. Um, and she would make an absolutely dreadful president. Disappointingly, it seems that Trump himself has uh, stolen some of her clothes. It seems he's been infected by the uh, endless the bellicose mentality of the mm -hmm. Washington deep state. And having said not all that long ago that he would bring the war in Ukraine to an end within 24 hours of becoming president, he's now talking about continuing it. So, yeah. you know, very well, disappointing. I think, I mean, it's interesting to see who both sides pick for their vice president candidates, because I think, um, I'm I'm quite partial to Tucker Carlson, and um, who's obviously in Moscow at the moment, uh, betraying his country. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that um, Trump's wife and son um, both are very keen on Tucker Carlson, but that he so and and trying to push him away from Haley. I mean, Trump to his MAGA fans made this fatal mistake of embracing the neocons, and will he do the same again by embracing Nikki Haley? And is that what Nikki Haley's angling for by staying in the race? Well, that's what people are suggesting. And of course, although she has filled out census forms to say she's white, she is in fact of Indian ethnic heritage. Uh, her mm -hmm. real name is Randava. This Nikki Haley is a completely right, yeah. made up name. Um, but whatever color she is, she's obviously a woman. And mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, way the identity politics and demographics work in the United States, that can only be a good thing for Donald Trump if he was to have a female right. of colour running mate. It'll be interesting to see whether or not the press decides right. she is a person of colour or not. That would right. be another tick in the box, rather mm. like uh, the way uh, Kamala Harris was selected as vice president to tick a couple of boxes. Nobody was... is talking about... Yeah, she's dreadful. 
Nobody's talking about He was about a box her. ticker and nothing else. Exactly. Okay, so nobody... we'll, we'll be following this closely, yeah. And um, okay. do keep us updated on the Veep picks and on uh, his deteriorating condition, the man in the White House. And uh, we will take a break there. Thank you, Basil, for today's headlines. This is Thank TNT you. Radio. Now, as we move into an election year in US politics at a time when the Western Empire is under attack from within, as if an orchestrated decline is the plan, whilst at the same time, the rise of BRICS nations represents a rise of a new multipolar order. Institutions that have controlled the world are at last being questioned for their behavior and their failures. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The proof shall set us free. Those two statements sit at opposite ends of the zeitgeist in a world that is filled with death, destruction, deceit, and a wholesale unwillingness to hold anyone in power to account, except for anyone who takes power against the ruling elite, of course. And then we have seen how that system works. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's news talk, TNT Radio, should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody, and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. This is the Pelinareth Taylor Show. Welcome back to TNT Freedom Radio. I've got this uh, fantastic guest coming up, uh, Ivan Kachanovsky, a professor at the University of Ottawa, whose work I've admired for years because he was a truth teller in the darkness after 2014, when we were fed a very one-sided story of this Maidan events. Uh, Ivan, we're going to talk to you a little bit about uh, the latest developments in Ukraine with this political crisis. I mean, you have your ears very closely to the ground and you know what's happening in this drama between the Zelensky and his cohorts. But first, I just thought you'd tell us a little bit about what really happened at the Maidan uh, in 2014 for an audience that, I mean, that's happened almost 10 years ago now, uh, coming up uh, in late February. So just just tell us what happened at the Maidan uh, events and who was really responsible for it. And it's not clue. It wasn't what the mainstream media tell you. Um, yes, thank you. Um, this is actually beyond any reasonable doubt now that uh, this Maidan massacre of the Maidan protesters and the police was organized and conducted with involvement of um, elements of the far right an oligarchic Maidan opposition as a part of a false flag operation to overthrow the Yanukovych government and to take power in Ukraine. And this evidence is just overwhelming. You have uh, testimonies of uh, several hundred witnesses about snipers located in Maidan controlled buildings, which were admitted officially, uh, like uh, Hotel Ukraina, which was controlled officially by the Svoboda, Farai Svoboda party during the Maidan massacre. And before this massacre, we have a testimonies of uh, even absolute majority of wounded Maidan activists who testified for the Ukrainian investigation and detail. They testified that they were shot not by... Uh, uh, 
Sniper is located in, in the government buildings, but by actually snipers located in the back or in the sides, in the areas controlled by the Maidan opposition. And there are like videos, uh, dozens of videos of such snipers. There are like ballistic examinations by uh, government forensic experts and, uh, and and so on. And there is recently, just a few months ago, there was a Maidan massacre trial, which revealed, uh, again, which confirmed actually my studies and, and, and uh, even so this trial is controlled by the government, you still have a kind of revelations and confirmations that actually there were snipers located in the Hotel Ukraina in the Maidan control mm -hmm. area. They shot at the Maidan protesters and also BBC and German television crews. Okay, so just to summarize, I mean, what, what you read in the New York Times and on the BBC was that um, peaceful protesters who've been protesting for democracy against the corrupt government of the Ukrainian leader Yanukovych was suddenly fired on out of the blue by his special forces and that led the peaceful population to rise up and overthrow their governments. What you're saying is that snipers belonging to the Democrat side that against the process fired at their own people in order to create a scene, in order to create the motivation for the overthrow. Is that correct? And you, because uh, yeah. I've seen all your papers and I've seen your you, you're drawing upon all these documentation and I mean, also obviously it's in Russian that, that, that or Ukrainian. A lot of these things have been discussed in the Ukrainian media at a time and it was still free, but you're bringing it to Western audience. And I've seen endless detailed diagrams of the, the, the line of sight and the way the bullets hit and so on. And the way that people were wounded suggests it came from an, a building controlled by the democratic opposition, although ostensibly democratic opposition, but it, that has been infiltrated by the far right, the Nazis, the neo-Nazis. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, exactly. And um, uh, th this opposition uh, was not a democratic opposition. It actually was very undemocratic action to the government, which was elected by a um, majority of Ukrainian people in elections which were recognized as free and fair, mm. largely fair. International observers and and this uh, again uh, kind of uh, quite unbelievable to see a distinction between or a divergence between actually what I saw on all this evidence, which is just overwhelming evidence, and what I saw mm. in the media like New York Times and, and um, Guardian and, uh, and uh, all the media, Western media basically totally omitted all this evidence. Even so, there were Western journalists, even BBC mm. journalists. They were shot from locations from the Maidan control Hotel Ukraina. And just recently, in October, the Maidan massacre trial in Ukraine confirms this. They stated that uh, BBC television crew in this video, they were shot from, um, from Maidan activist control Hotel Ukraina. And um, as this was evidence of use of weapons by Maidan opposition, zero media right. report, like almost totally... Right. Uh, so, this, so, um, but the, you're saying, I mean, you're a professor at the University of Ottawa in Canada, which is the capital of Canada, and you, um, I guess that puts you in, what your stance is now puts you in opposition to the large Ukrainian-Canadian community who are quite supportive of the nationalists. What, what, what kind of reaction have you had in Canada to your very well I'll, I'll give you a, web, uh, a website. You can give me a website later to where we can find all this documentation written very persuasively in English, obviously. Um, where, um, what has the reaction been in Canada to, to your, your um, account? 
Actually, if you're looking into Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, it's very light on paper, but uh, I think a lot of Ukrainians uh, actually now are assimilated from all the generations. And so and I, when I attend Ukrainian events, there were just very few people relatively attended, but uh, I think the reaction was uh, from uh, uh, small elements, especially intellectuals, uh, and were kind of quite... Um, I think uh, revealing uh, kind of reaction because they try to suppress my uh, studies. They try to attack me like as a pro-Russian, as a kind of as propaganda, as disinformation. <laughs> this is quite unbelievable because I uh, experienced the same situation and the same reaction when um, I was a student in uh, in UK in Kiev in the 1990s and when I wrote my um, undergraduate thesis and uh, actually in Ukrainian language. And, uh, and submitted this to my advisor at the university who told me that they uh, gonna expel me from uh, my uh, university for writing this thesis because it was uh, based on Western uh, theories, economic theories, and uh, not on and Max Weber, and not right. on uh, Marxist Lenin. So, so for me, this is quite unbelievable. And now uh, I think even they kind of uh, attacked me at this conference at Canadian Ukrainian um, Research Institute in, in Alberta and also- pro, pro, Sorry, yes, Professor yes. Kachinovsky. I want to know that, well, so we're saying that there were um, snipers, far right Ukrainian snipers firing at their own side to create the impetus for a revolution against the popularly elected government of Yanukovych. Were there foreign snipers as well? I mean, like from Georgia or Lithuania or the, in, even the United States? Um, again, uh, based on my research, which is political science research, I cannot look into individual uh, kind of involvement of individual people, but I think there is also quite clear evidence that there were involvement of a West, um, not a Western, but actually foreign snipers from uh, from Georgia, and uh, there were seven such snipers admitted officially in uh, in uh, television uh, interviews in Italy, in the United States, in, in Israeli documentary. And uh, testimonies to the Maidan massacre. Tell. Right. So there were se seven Georgians, and were there any Americans? Uh, no, I think they admitted, seven of them admitted officially, and they said that there were many more uh, Georgians. And, and they, were, they said also there were snipers from, um, from uh, Baltic states. and um, From the Baltic and, states. Okay, yeah. we'll just we'll come back one... after the break. Sorry, we'll come back after the break. Thank you. This is TNT Radio. This news just in TNT Radio News. Ready? Go, 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 go. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Despite the White House's best efforts to stop him, Tucker Carlson has secured an interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin. India's Prime Minister has pledged to make his country's economy the third largest on earth. Argentina is relocating its embassy in Israel to West Jerusalem. And Donald Trump has vowed to appeal a federal court ruling denying him presidential immunity in a lawsuit accusing him of trying to overturn the 2020 election. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Welcome back to the Pelanerath Taylor Show. This is TNT Freedom Radio. We've got Ivan Kachinovsky, who's a professor at the University of Ottawa in Canada. And this is astonishing because we're talking about the Maidan events, this revolution that set off the, the, the 
political crisis in Ukraine that led to a war eight years later. And you've, in a very, very elegant forensic detail with maps and videos and things, you've and and trajectory lines, you've shown that the the, that the shootings of the protesters came from their own side, and what we call in the in the in journalistic terms a false flag event. Um, and I've seen all that evidence. Is there people? There are going to be enough people out there who are going to go and Google this thing straight away after the show. What, what do they Google on? Because I know you've got your web, your web, uh, your um, papers up on a website called um, academia.edu, which is for academics put their stuff up for outsiders to view. But is that the best place to go and find your your work? Uh, I think this uh, my academia my academia page includes all the copies of my articles, including about um, about my Dan massacre. But I published uh, recently two peer-reviewed articles, uh, two peer-reviewed journal articles about this Maidan massacre, which are open access and publicly available, and they are already viewed by more than 100,000. Um, uh, 100,000 people, yeah. yeah. And a download of uh, entire text of the article, of view of full text of the article, and my entire articles had, I think, now used, viewed about 1 million uh, times. Kind of, and this is uh, publicly available evidence, and anybody can uh, yeah. access it. And I just uh, today, I submitted my manuscript to major Western university, um, um, sorry, major Western academic press, which would include also examination of Maidan massacre and how this led to mm. the Russian war. So this is, uh, and I have a new book which would be entirely devoted to Maidan massacre, which would be uh, again published later this year by another major Western academic press. So all, all this Good. evidence is available. Sure, and I've, I've seen it. It's relatively easy to access. So, but this is. The kind of bombshell revelation, because what you're saying, uh, we'll quickly uh, finish this off and talk about what's happening now. But there were snipers from the Baltic states shooting at this, at their own people, at the side that they supposedly represented from behind, wounding them and killing them, so that that would give the impetus to create this coup against Yanukovych and install a new government in Ukraine, which was. Uh, a fact we're still living with eight, uh, eight, 10 years later. But these Baltic snipers are members of a, a NATO member state. So it was an act of war, was it not, against Ukraine from NATO? Um, I think these are reports of a presence of, West, of Baltic snipers, but I'm not sure that they were actually from the government. Uh, and there's no revelations about their identity, right. but I think there are admissions, public admissions in the television interviews and statements to Ukrainian file by Georgian, uh, by Georgians that they were actually there, mm. and that they also received instructions from one former American uh, military sniper who right. was also present, and they named him, but again, I'm not able to investigate yeah. this, but I think this kind of my website, YouTube website also contains all these mm. videos of the Maidan massacre, which okay. are synchronized, including testimonies at the Maidan mm. massacre trial, all these witnesses, right. and government experts, which are, I think quite um, just unbelievable that uh, almost nothing of this is reported yeah. by major Western media, even so it's publicly available. And my okay. uh, Twitter views got millions and millions of uh, views, uh, Twitter uh, posts about this Maidan massacre revelations. And so, so what just to interrupt, we, we can't establish if there's a provenance, a source of these, so that, that you're saying that there were witness testimonies saying that there was a Ukrainian, Amer American former commander, and that there were ba Baltic snipers. Okay, we'll leave it there. We can't prove that there's a link to NATO governments or to any officialdom, but 
we also have this thing called plausible deniability, which is where you leave your job in the military and still carry out work for your NATO government back home, but you're officially not attached to them. Anyway, we can't go further there. But Professor Kachanovsky, what's going on in Ukraine right now? Because we've got uh, this Zaluzhny contra Budanov contra Zelensky trial triangle, and we don't know what's happening. Who is Zelensky going to fire his his chief of military, Zaluzhny, or what's going on? Uh, yes, I think this is now basically even admitted officially by Zelensky in his uh, Italian television interview. He said that he he wants to replace Zaluzhny as a kind of commander-in-chief of Ukrainian military forces. And also he said uh, that he might replace other military leaders and uh, government leaders in a major shuffle of a change of strategy. But basically, I don't think this would change much because the Ukrainian situation is very uh, dire and very difficult because of uh, Russian military advantage, which was clear from the very start of the Russian invasion, that Ukraine would not be able to defeat Russia, which has overwhelming advantage in military, in the size of a potential mobilization force, and in uh, weapons, and and so on. And even with Western uh, supply and Western proxy war in Ukraine, uh, this just was prolongation of this uh, conflict and would not lead to any kind of um, defeat of Russia, which was the official line of Zelensky after he abandoned peaceful negotiations following um, Western leaders' uh, kind of, uh, instructions in, um, uh, in April of 2022. So this is, I mean, um, Western leaders' uh, kind of, uh, instructions in, um, uh, in April of 2022. So this is, I think, very difficult situation. And the latest conflict is just public admission of this. And uh, if I just follow the news, in Avdiivka, another town in Ukraine, in Donbass, is now close to being surrounded by Russian forces. And uh, there are very significant casualties as well. So I think this is a very kind of uh, situation which could have been avoided and prevented uh, at the first place if Ukraine would would have fulfilled Minsk obligations. And so just do, okay. yeah. So it's going to continue to be be. Are the, do the Ukrainians and their Western backers have any options? Because I was speculating with another guy yesterday whether the Ukrainians would carry out an. A, if they installed the Budanov, who's his head of military intelligence in the place of Zaluzhny, they would carry out a program of assassinations and maybe false flag operations in, in the West to, to try and get NATO in, involved in the war. Um, but you're sort of saying, well, it's it's over anyway, so not, not, not much is going to happen. Do you think, what, what do you think is going to happen now? I think uh, Ukrainian uh, forces, and especially specifically intelligence and uh, SBU, secret service, uh, they use assassinations in Russia against uh, Russian military leaders and, and even journalists, kind of, and, um, uh, specifically as a, as a kind of asymmetric tactic to kind of uh, to show that. The, the, uh, you can can respond to Russian forces, uh, um, but I think this would not have a very large effect. That's similarly what happened with Crimea attacks. This is mostly for public mm -hmm. relations purposes, mm -hmm. just to kind of maintain this view that Ukraine uh, is able to resist the Russian forces. Even so, mm -hmm. in in practice, this is I think would would be almost impossible. So there are close to zero chances of Ukraine basically winning yeah. this war against Russia. So it, it, it's going to continue to be pinprick attacks. And so we mustn't make too much of what's going on in Kiev. How do you see the Ukrainian war in six months' time then? Final question. 
I think it's very difficult to predict because boys are very unpredictable. But I think in six months Ukraine will be in even more difficult situation because the longer war continues, the more difficult situation for Ukraine would be. And uh, I think this is kind of um, basically uh, road to nowhere for Ukraine to because continuation of the war would mean uh, more Russian advances and uh, likely defeat of of Ukraine. And the only question is if Zelensky will remain president of Ukraine because uh, there is already big uh, kind of a, a pro in Ukraine due to mobilization uh, new law, which uh, requires a lot of Ukrainians to mo be mobilized. And uh, there is uh, now strong resistance to this. And Zelensky might be not a longer uh, president of Ukraine by the end of this year because of uh, his expiration of presidential terms. So I think there is some possibility that a war could end in six months, but I think uh, more likely it would continue. Uh, in the next six months, because this is not only a decision by Zelensky, this is also a proxy war between the West and Russia. Because of course. They use okay, it. so we'll have you back and talking about uh, what's if your prediction is correct or not. And it was very interesting to hear about uh, your uh, your description of the Maidan and the false flag that took place there. Thank you very much, Professor Kachinovsky. This is TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Last week when Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about the position of Joe Biden when it comes to late-term abortions, she had the phony rhetoric ready to go. What I will say is majority of Americans, majority of Americans, wants to see their rights protected, wants to see women have their rights protected, wants to be able to, wants, want women to be able to make those deeply, deeply personal decisions on their bodies, on their own, not politicians. That's what majority of Americans want to see. And so the president's going to stand with majority of Americans on this issue. Do those unborn babies have any rights then? I'm not going to get into that specific, I'm not going to get into that question. Rights for unborn babies? What are you, mad? <laughs> but let's take a look at how Americans really feel about the issue of abortion. This is from Gallup, May of last year. Only 34% of Americans believe abortion should be legal under all circumstances. 34%, a majority, 64% say limited circumstances or not at all. And in the same poll, only 22% of Americans believe third trimester abortion should be legal at all. It just shows that Corinne Jean-Pierre and her leftist buddies are a bunch of liars. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Swedish-British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroff-Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to TNT. This is Pella Neuroff-Taylor. We've got our next guest, who's Lee Slusher, who's a consultant, a geopolitical analyst at BT Consulting. Hi, Lee. I, I loved your articles on Substack. Um, extremely well written and very, you know, very funny. A very funny take on the on the mainstream media and all the all the geopolitical analysts on that side of the corporate divide who uh, always cover up for each other and their mistakes. Um, and you're sort of you talk about uh, how they um, uh, predicted Russia's imminent demise in this conflict and uh, how they underestimated uh, Russia's resilience and strength and exaggerated Ukraine. Now, do you think this is a mistake, or do you think they? Because I'm. Let me think. I wonder whether, uh, let's say, the, the Western intelligence agencies just didn't know how the war would pan out or whether they deliberately misbriefed Western politicians so that they would commit to this war. What do you think? 
I think there are many people within the establishment who who are true believers. Um, since for the past 30 years or so, since the end of the Cold War, they've they've really grown accustomed to holding what they think of as a royal flush and thinking everyone else around the table has a much lesser hand. Now that's changed uh, for two reasons, in part because of a decline in American power, but also because of rise in the power and capabilities of other countries. So I think many of them uh, really are true believers. Now, as far as what's happening at the top or behind the scenes, whether that was propaganda, uh, I'm not sure. But I think if you look throughout the establishment, uh, there was just a, a really misplaced sense of faith uh, that the past is prologue when it comes to uh, the ability of the U.S. to project power or to support allies doing the same. So you really believe that they, well, let me just put my theory across, because I think that um, let's, the, the Western lead, I mean, when the sanctions came in, days after the conflict started, it showed that that was a pre-prepared event. I mean, they rehearsed it and gamed it, okay? Now, Western leaders are all on on the same page and saying the same thing, and so they must have discussed it beforehand. Now, Western intelligence agencies briefing Western leaders, uh, and they must have briefed the Ukrainians as well. So the Ukrainians, if they were told that the West was going to have these sanctions kick in, and the West intelligence agencies, these sanctions are going to crater the Russian economy. Whether they Western intelligences believe they were telling a lie or not, that must have given the Ukrainians an incentive to do a provocation against Russia in the knowledge that the Western sanctions would finish Russia off very quickly. If you do you follow yeah. my argument? No, I do. And, and I think it has merit. Um, we, we spent eight years essentially building up uh, the Ukrainians, pumping up their confidence while they fought uh, against separatists in, in Donbass. And I think that they really believed, particularly uh, in the early months after the, the Russian invasion in 2022, that they would have the full backing of uh, what they saw as the most powerful bloc in the world. So mm. I, I think they were led astray in that regard, of course. Do you think, um, well, I mean, the, the OSCE, this organization, this international organization, <coughs> which was uh, patrolling or guard, had its international monitors on the, on the ceasefire line in Donbass, it had it uh, reported, I mean, it's there, it's a, it's not a Russian organization. It's an, it's the, I don't know if it's a UN organization. I can't remember. Anyway, the, sh the, the, the shootings were on the Russian side. I mean, it was from the Ukrainian side to the Russian side. So that seems that the Ukrainians carried out an acceleration of firing. And that's the Russians argument or propaganda argument. They shot at us first, but were the Russians kind of baiting the Russian, uh, Ukrainians baiting the Russians because they'd been told somewhere that the Russians fight back and then we'll destroy that then. And so the Ukrainians might have thought, well, we'll have this war on the cheap now because NATO will be behind us. They'll create the Russian economy and we'll chalk this up as a victory and everything will be good. And then they were surprised when um, either NATO didn't go. Do you think that the, the, the Russian economy was resilient? So somebody lied to them out of spite. I mean, they knew that they were lying or they re genuinely believed it. We don't know who in MI6, what their motives were. Do you think that NATO had promised the Ukrainians that they would go in militarily as well? I think it was definitely uh, in the background all the time. If not, uh, I don't know that it was said outright, but it was certainly suggested quite heavily uh, that there was a there was a Western backstop. They would have the best weapons, uh, the kind of you know, targeting intelligence and other forms of intelligence. Uh, whether it was said that there would be a direct intervention, I don't know. Because hmm. there's this guy called uh, Aristovich, who was an advisor to mm -hmm. uh, to what's his name to Zelensky. I don't know. He's decamped to New York or something. And he's 
he puts out these YouTube videos that are kind of uh, completely repudiates his former stance or something. I don't know where he stands, but he's now saying that the Ukrainians should join up with the Russians because they're so pissed off that they were treated badly by the West and that they were all screwed. You know, they're, they're losing their entire generation of males under the age of 25, you know, yeah. and they can ill afford it. And R Russians are losing men as well. And they can ill afford it because they have also a demographic crisis. But um, yeah, what do you think? Arostovich is a really interesting guy. I mean, he was uh, essentially one of uh, Zelensky's right-hand men and until things uh, started to go south and he started to become more more outspoken. And now, in, in, uh, particularly in recent months, he's been saying things that would have gotten him arrested as a Russian propagandist uh, two years ago. So I think he's uh, probably a political actor who can uh, tell which way the wind is blowing. Um, mm -hmm. But having said that, I, I think his recent comments are are quite accurate about uh, having chosen the wrong side, having chosen the the losing side, um, that they kind of gotten carried away with themselves, believing that the West would accept them and bring them in. Uh, the reality I've worked with NATO uh, off and on for decades, and the reality is Ukraine was was never going to make its way into the alliance, at least not uh, for for you know for a very long time, uh, for for all sorts of reasons not just in terms of military capabilities, but also corruption within the country from top to bottom, you know, from Zelensky down to the, the beat cop who, who shakes people down on the street. It was simply something that was dangled in front of them as a, as a false promise. And, and I think in this case, Arostovich actually says quite accurately uh, that it was all, uh, all a mirage and, and the Ukrainians fell for it and now they'll have to pay. I mean, don't let anyone accuse this channel of being a Putinist stooge. So, I mean, did the Russians over, I mean, did, if Ukraine was never going to become a NATO member anyway, were the Russians badly motiv motivated for the wrong reasons? Was that just a pretext for knocking out Ukraine or did they have a genuine, genuine justified fear that uh, the West was coming to get them? I think they had a genuine justified fear that uh, on a certain timeline, there was already a large uh, NATO contingent within Ukraine, of course. Um, and I think that there was a, a justified sense that that over time, this growing presence would would become something that would contest Russian influence there. I mean, of course, Russia had already annexed uh, Crimea many years ago. But um, I, I do think that their their argument about the protection of, of their so-called uh, compatriots in parts of the country was valid, particularly when we look at what I think under any other circumstances would be referred to as ethnic cleansing. Um, a lot of the violence against uh, the, the ethnic Russians, the Russian speakers, in other words, the people who identify themselves as Russians, not just the violence, uh, but the persecution in terms of uh, their ability to use their language. And I know these things get chalked up often as propaganda, but uh, those things actually did occur. Now, the extent to which uh, the Russian government was motivated honestly to act on behalf of those things versus using this uh, as a means uh, by which to contest, you know, Ukraine's slide to the West. I, I can't say, but those things certainly did occur and they occurred throughout large parts of the country. Hmm. You said you work with NATO. Uh, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about your work with them, because uh, I'd like to hear that inside view um, what your take on on the institution is and, and uh, that the organization's future maybe much of my work had to do with uh, afghanistan i had to do in and around afghanistan 
Uh, I worked with most of the members of the alliance. I've also done work, a lot of research about NATO, and I've worked uh, in Europe and the US with NATO partners going back probably 20 years. So my view is that uh, at least by the time that I started to work with them, it was essentially just a large political alliance and not much of a, of a military one. And I think of the, the NATO bureaucracy in particular as, as just a means to provide uh, kind of sinecures for the credential class. I mean, I, the people I met were wonderful. I had great coffee, uh, but it wasn't much of a fighting force. You know, the European forces had not only shrunk considerably since the end of the Cold War, but they really had no uh, substantial capabilities to operate independently, particularly in a combined arms or a high intensity conflict. Everything, uh, they, they provided these boutique capabilities that were meant to plug in with the US and what they call out of area operations, meaning out of Europe. And those were usually uh, either peacekeeping or stability operations or the, the highest, uh, or, or things like uh, what we saw in Afghanistan. But the sense in NATO was that there really wasn't any kind of external threat, that NATO could be this instrument for operating elsewhere in the world. Um, and what we've found is that they've kind of neglected the home front to such an extent that NATO, uh, it's, it's really no longer very capable of executing its core mission. Mm. Okay, well, I'm going to pose a sort of uh, Russia skeptic question, because I mean, from the political side, I can see media driven side, the British and the Americans, but you know, the British were pushing this anti Putin narrative, just as they'd earlier pushed the anti Gaddafi, anti Saddam, anti Assad, every time they insult this guy incessantly for a long time, call him a dictator, send in special forces, promote the opposition and so on. And of course, these leaders were toppled or in Assad's case, not toppled, but wounded, you know, and these countries were chaos was created. And I could see that it was like the, the 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 mob was coming around to your house as well with lighted torches and shouting slogans at your outside your door outside Putin's door and Putin said well that's not gonna I'm not gonna end up in a in a drain pipe like uh, Gaddafi you know screw you but what you just said was that the NATO didn't actually have very much even in 2000 so were why were the Russians so worried then I mean if Putin if this is sinecure type organization. Well, I meant that uh, in term, politically, in terms of the, the bulk of the people who comprise the bureaucracy. Now, yeah. the U.S. was always meant to be the heavy lifter in NATO. Even during the Cold War, the European Army's job was to hold on until the U.S. could send reinforcements. But after the end of the Cold War, it became really a wholesale reliance on U.S. capabilities, particularly those that at that time uh, gave the U.S. an edge. So lots of things like precision strike, um, the ability to have worldwide logistics uh, networks, the things that for many years after the Cold War, uh, most people considered to be uh, the source of US military supremacy, uh, supremacy and overwhelming supremacy. But what we've seen at that same time is that many countries, most notably Russia, has built up a lot of capabilities that can um, contest the, the US in many areas and even have an edge in some other ones. So it's not that NATO had no capabilities. It was that it was a wholesale reliance on on these U.S. ones and that people didn't really realize the extent to which uh, warfare was changing and the capabilities of the various countries that that could be involved. Hmm. What do you think is going to happen now? This Trump talks about leaving NATO. I mean, there's also always this bluff and counter bluff and big political talk. And the, Britain is talking about conscription and inevitable war with uh, with Russia, and the Swedes are going war crazy as well. Uh, 
What do you think Trump's going to leave NATO? If he is elected, um, it's hard to say because with Trump, there's frequently a lot of rhetoric. And then once he, you know, the, the, originally there was a lot of rhetoric. And once he got in power, he didn't necessarily follow through on all of it. I think this time there's much greater impetus to do so. Um, about the war rhetoric, the curious thing to me is that there's a lot of talk of war, but there isn't any real substantial preparation for war. The forces haven't grown considerably. The size and structure of the formations haven't changed considerably. Uh, there are really uh, critical uh, deficiencies in, in Western uh, defense intel and defense industrial base. So mm -hmm. the ability for, for these countries to go uh, head to head in any kind of conflict like the one they're describing now is just completely absent. So whether this mm -hmm. is political posturing or whether it's just reckless leadership, I don't know. But mm -hmm. uh, in any case, Western militaries, despite the rhetoric, they're, they're simply not prepared in any way for such a conflict. Right. So there's been this talk, again, as you said, we, we always have to separate the, the, the political bluff and counter bluff and the psyops, psychological games. Um, and there's this 90,000 90, troop NATO exercise that's going to be lasting now from until May, as you know. And the Russian media have released this uh, document where they cl claim stolen from some East Europeans who've been talking about it with their British counterparts, about the Brits trying to persuade everyone to go into Western Ukraine. Do you think that's all bluff now, or is, there, is it a serious proposal? Well, given the, that... the weakness of NATO, as you say. Sadly, I think there are many people who don't understand NATO's relative weakness, particularly in this situation. You know, we can't compare military capabilities in an abstract sense. We have to look at where and when the fight is going to occur. And mm -hmm. they're talking about having one in a place where uh, Russia has significant overmatch across the board. And there's a, mm -hmm. an old military saying, at least in the U.S., get there the firstest with the mostest. Well, in terms of Ukraine, I mean, that's that's Russia. They have hundreds of thousands of forces with yeah. the best combat you know, experience thus far. But I, I think, sadly, there probably are quite a few leaders, uh, particularly in Europe and in the UK, who still think this would be a good idea uh, to move into uh, Western Ukraine. Mm. And what worries me is that there's going to be some, because I think that the, the Skripal, for instance, in 2018 was a British operation. I mean, the Brits are very good at psyops. They're very good at false flags and these kinds of things, but they don't have the military capacity to match it. But I mean, the point is, they'll do this false flag, get Europe into a technical state of war with uh, Russia and move in NATO and NATO will be slaughtered and then we'll be in a, a nuclear confrontation situation. It's it's one of my concerns. I wrote about it about a year and a half ago in a piece titled uh, Amateur Hour Armageddon. And it really it details this exact scenario that some people are foolish enough to push for a direct Western intervention in Ukraine. And that this, in many ways, such an operation would require the kind of uh, attacks on things like Russia's air defense that would be indistinguishable from a larger sort of decapitation strike against Russia in general. And that that could uh, absolutely prompt uh, a, a much bigger conflict, including the use of nuclear weapons. Hmm. Right. Well, I mean, it's a good thing that we're talking about it, because uh, if the false flag happens, we will the, the Western mainstream media, UK media will be right on the story with their friends and in the intelligence agencies and it'll be a shock and awe and we'll be bounced into a war so i'm glad that we've got tnt and we've got glad we've got people like you uh, lee slusher in your very measured and intelligent way telling us about what's going on 
Thank you very much and hope to have you on again. This is TNT Radio, Pelenero Taylor talking about NATO and other worrying things, possible third world war. <laughs>